The Federal Reserve estimates there are more than 60 million Americans who are either unbanked or underbanked, and they're paying a high price every time they want to cash a check or apply for credit. There's a wider cost, too, for being outside of the banking system. It was a topic we recently explored with three guests who are all deeply invested in changing a system that excludes too many. But their work is having results locally. We'll get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To have your questions answered on future shows, remember to download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is Wale Koksum. He's the founder and CEO of the startup Mobility Capital Finance, or MOCAFI. Shamina Singh is the founder and president of the Center for Inclusive Growth, the philanthropic hub of MasterCard. And Ida Rademacher is vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of its financial security program. Our conversation took place at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. Ida, I want to start with just a definition because... We hear a lot about financial literacy, but then there's an issue of access, financial inclusion. How do those two differ? It's a great question. It's the right place to start. Uh, We often, with financial education, it's about how do you equip the individual with the information to navigate financial decisions and financial products and services. When you talk about financial inclusion, it's traditionally been talked about as access. What's the access point? But we try to look uh, one step beyond that now to talk about what are the financial products and services that people need to be able to not only access but utilize safely to help them navigate and manage their financial lives. Hmm. I I heard Ida use the word safely. And Wally, when you, you hear someone say how to access these services safely, what comes to mind for you? What does that mean? Safely is the ability to access your cash without having to worry about someone taking it from you. Very simply, right? And so, so many times individuals have to go to a place like a check casher, walk out with cash, and it's unclear whether or not that they'll be safe when they walk out because people know people are walking out with cash. So it's really an ability to have access to your dollars Know that it's there. Know that you can get it electronically. I actually increasingly equate safety with taking advantage of technology and ensuring that people can do it when they want to and access it how they want to. Shamina, how big of an issue is this in the U.S.? It's a massive issue. And just to build a little bit on what both Ida and Mole just said, you know, if you think about the post-COVID, I mean, that we're all still experiencing COVID, I think that the post-COVID economy in the United States laid bare the inequities in terms of access, in terms of usage, in terms of just how hard it is to survive, but also thrive in what we call a digital economy. Well, I mentioned check cashers, you know, for the economic impact payments that went out as part of the government's emergency payments, most people had to wait over a week 
to get their payment because the systems didn't talk to each other and they were fragmented and they couldn't find a lot of people. And then when they did get the payment, the conservative estimate is that they paid over $66 million in check cashing fees. So they got a little bit of money um, from the government to help get them through. And then because they were not connected to a larger system that was safe and secure, they went to check cashers and ended up spending a significant portion of that. They just basically had to give it away. So if you think about it from that perspective, it sort of raises the question, at least in my mind, and I think of a lot of what we talk about is we have an opportunity right now in a post-COVID economy to build back in a way that recognizes the inequities in a system that has laid bare the problems that people are facing. And I think the question that we're trying to ask and answer is, can we do it in a way that is responsible, that honors the fact that, that people have a right to participate and in the formal economy. And we have an opportunity here in the United States to make it happen. Ida, is it possible to talk about this issue of financial inclusion in a bubble? Because I, I heard Wale say, talk about access digitally. And we know there's a digital divide in this country as well. So what other intersections do we need to consider when we talk about financial inclusion? I, I, don't, I think the whole point is to get it out of the bubble. It is a highly technical conversation. You would bore all of your dinner party friends <laughs> with the, the deep conversations that Wole and Shamina and I often have, which we're not going to have today. But uh, the thing is, it's a kitchen table issue. It's a democracy issue. It's a dynamic, vibrant, growing economy issue. I think of financial security at the household level as the basis for uh, what it takes to have a fully productive economy. And I've often said this, I heard it from uh, someone else, so I can never attribute this to myself, but right now it's a full employment kind of economy, but many people are underemployed or working multiple jobs still or trying to figure out how to scrape it by. People are exquisite money managers that live in scarcity, and we make it harder for them because our systems are complex and don't talk to each other, like Shamina said. So it's not a bubble conversation. The reality is, as this saying goes, it's really hard to swing a baseball bat and hit a home run if you're actually standing in a canoe. And without the financial systems uh, that actually work for people, uh, we have a lot of people standing in canoes. And if we want a fully inclusive economy, one that I think that means that there's more uh, dynamism is it? There's a lot of people that can make choices to be entrepreneurs when there's a place of stability, uh, when they've got some level of agency and dignity in the way that they can manage decisions around their financial life. Uh, so it is, it is a, it's a facet of health. It's a facet of uh, education. It's a facet of just about any other thing that is a key decision at your kitchen table or for a small business owner. At the end of the day, economic inclusion and economic growth is going to center on how many households can fully participate. And in a digital economy, that's going to start with the products and services and policies that facilitate people's access to financial services. Well, who are we talking about here when we talk about the unbanked? There are 60 million Americans who fall in the category of unbanked and underbanked. The statistics range around in the African-American community 50 plus percent of folks are unbanked or underbanked. And in the Latinx community, the numbers are very similar. And the folks who fall in those two categories are ones that 
operate only in cash. And the other category of people who have bank accounts but need to rely on financial services from places such as the payday lenders or the check cashers or the pawn shops because the traditional financial services companies, the, the branch-based banking companies and others, don't have products and services for that individual. So very interesting statistic. Can I add on to that sure. in terms of the other pieces of financial inclusion that we're starting to add into the mix? 55 million Americans um, don't have retirement savings or access to retirement savings at work. So there's the set of experiences around stability, payments, basic finance and access to banking. And there's a whole other set around um, longer-term financial security and the kinds of insurance and retirement savings and other kinds of investments that people don't have access to, too. So I just wanted to throw that in the mix of the continuum that we're actually talking about these days in this conversation. Well, and the continuum is real because if you were, if the African-American community, for example, were to be as fully banked as our white counterparts, that would create a trillion dollars of value in the U.S. economy. So this is a very meaningful impact, and it's one of those opportunities where you actually, it's not a zero-sum game. In fact, by adding more people into the economy, it allows all boats to rise. The one thing I would share, it's interesting, the Urban Institute put together an analysis that said 21% of African Americans have a credit score greater than 700, and the, the white counterparts, that number is greater than 50%. And there are structural reasons why good, responsible financial behavior are not being captured in the credit scores. But because if your credit score is not 700, or if you don't have a credit score at all, you can't get some of the things that many of us take for granted, a credit card. You can't get a mortgage. So as a result, you fall into the category of someone who needs to look at these alternative, often predatory financial services products that, that put you in the unbanked and underbanked category. Well, Shamina, I wonder if, if part of what also has to happen is a rebuilding of trust. There's been so many studies and, and reporting on how credit scores are used, um, how they don't work the same for everyone, depending upon who you are, um, how you can take the same amount, the same uh, financial statistics. And if you're black, have one outcome if you're applying for a home loan or a car loan and a different one mm-hmm. if you're white. So how does trust fit into this conversation? I think trust underlies uh, everything, right? So, I mean, I work at a company whose um, fundamental offering is a trust-based system. If you buy something and you get what you pay for, and if you don't like it, you can return it. And so that's the fundamental technology of the MasterCard network. Um, And so trust is everything, and in order to build an inclusive financial system, which is what we're, kind of, we're talking about here today, you have to build in the mechanisms. Um, we call them franchise rules at MasterCard, but you have to b- build in the rules of the game so that they don't bias against one or another. And I think just building a little bit on what Wole was saying, we're at this really interesting crossroads in our country. We have all of this wonderful technology, and we hear all of these buzzwords, open banking, cryptocurrency, you name it, we're hearing all of these things, right? Data, say data science, data is driving all decision making. And then we have this other this other piece that says, there are a lot of people who still are living outside of the formal system, either because they're digitally disconnected, or, or for whatever reason. And so what I think we're trying to do here is create the, an intersection that sort of brings together 
the technology and the possibility of technology with the real needs. We sometimes say you can't have the internet of everything without the inclusion of everyone. And that's what we're trying to do here in this instance. And so how it relates to credit is there are ways now to create proxies for credit score. So the traditional notions of credit rely on collateral. Well, guess what? A lot of women and a lot of people of color don't have a car, don't have a house, don't have traditional notions of collateral. So something called open banking, what it basically allows allows people to do is if they have an account, that it allows mortgage companies, it allows other auto dealers, it allows to look at your buying and spending behavior in real time to sort of say, is that a proxy that we can use that goes beyond traditional notions of credit score? Those are the ways, I think, to get to your question, we build trust between the two parties, is that we recognize you for who you are and what you have and how you contribute, not based on these standards that live outside of your real, uh, your lived experience, but because of your lived experience. That's making technology work for you, not against you. Well, I want to hear more about the work you're doing specifically to close this gap in financial access. So Mobility Capital Finance, or MOCAFI, we really started with the notion that said, how can we help people move from instability to stability to thriving? And one of the challenges we saw was how do we, how do we get to people at scale uh, in a very efficient way? And what we figured out was there's an opportunity to help cities and municipalities serve people with electronic tools. So, for example, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles and the summer of 2020, decided he wanted to create contactless government, a way for individuals to have single sign-on and businesses, single sign-on for city services, and then have a way for folks to receive money electronically from the government, as well as be able to pay for city services electronically. And it's very important in L.A. because there are a million dollars a day paid in cash at the water company in the city of Los Angeles and the water companies under the umbrella of the city. And so how do you do that in a city that has 500,000 people who don't have bank accounts and 20% of the neighborhoods don't have a bank branch? And so we reimagined our platform and use that, use our platform as a way for Mayor Garcetti to fulfill his goal and his dream, dream and vision. And in doing so, we've been able to get lots of the emergency rental assistance dollars to people. The largest universal basic income program in the country is in Los Angeles, uh, where you've got 3,000 families receiving $1,000 a month. Uh, and the universal basic income is this notion that Martin Luther King started talking about it late in his career, which gives people a fixed amount of money, not tied to anything, that allows them to figure out how they can pay for the things that they need in their lives so they can move forward school, an unexpected accident and the like. Anyway, so we're using the platform to, to, to serve that community. And, and in doing so, have the ability to move people to a bank account that's FDIC insured. We've transformed local stores into bank branches. So you can go into a CVS or a Rite Aid or a Family Dollar, which are the stores in community, and make deposits. The other part that we've done is created free check deposits. So people don't have to worry about 
paying a fee to get access to their own money. So we've created a banking system that's where we've really looked at the banking system and geared it towards the customer. I think one of the key pieces about trust, trust comes when you say to someone, I want your business. And I have created a product and service that works for the way you work and the way you live. And we've really tried to do that. And the final thing we've done is we are able to take rent payments, to Shamina's earlier point, and report those to the credit bureaus. So for so many people, rent is the payment that they make on time regularly and don't get credit for it in a credit score perspective. So we changed the game on that in terms of improving their credit scores. So we've created our own open banking framework that allows an individual to bring their banking information into, we call it our blueprint. It creates a digital locker of all your financial activity, and you can make that financial activity available to a financial coach. And that financial coach can see real time how you're doing, what your goals are, how you're doing against those goals. And the final step in our journey is seeing if you're ready for a mortgage. And so we can tell you based on your activity in your digital locker, and your, which includes your credit score, that, okay, now is the time to go after that mortgage. And we have banking partners who then come in and provide the ultimate mortgages. So we're really excited about moving people down a continuum so they can take full advantage of the, the economic opportunity in this country. Coming up, we'll talk about how engaging with those outside of the traditional banking system is also being used as an opportunity to engage them in our democratic system, too. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. And remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Now let's get back to the highlights of a conversation I had recently at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Earlier, we touched on reasons why traditional banking is failing millions in America who don't have access to an account. Credit agencies are also keeping many on the margins, and that's where we pick up the conversation from Aspen with Ida Rademacher. Credit is, uh, it's a a gateway. It is is used for all of the things that, that Wole and Shamina mentioned. It's also used to figure out if uh, a landlord's going to accept you as a tenant, it's used in your job applications. There's a lot of ways that, again, your financial life, while it can be quite a technical conversation in some ways, actually facilitates the rest of your ability to participate in labor markets, in housing markets. And again, we've also seen in places like the Deep South, Bill Bynum, who runs Hope Credit Union, has often said many times the first time they are engaged with a community member who's applying for a bank account, it's also the first time they've ever thought about voting in their life because this idea starts to facilitate an identity of inclusion across the board. It's part of the reason that we're excited now is because it's companies like Woolies, it's leaders like Shamina. There's really momentum building on the fact that the U.S. is um, really the odd man out not having a national financial inclusion strategy where we actually name some goals Tell me about those national goals. Yeah, so uh, Senator Coons last year was inspired by a lot of the the need for more financial inclusion, again, post-COVID, the big reveals of disparity that Shamina talked about. He and several other senators sent a letter to Secretary Treasury calling for a national financial inclusion strategy and interagency coordination around a presidential commission that would name the goals and issues for an inclusion strategy. 
part of the next set of questions were, who's in support? Is there anybody who would care if we did this? Should it be a priority of ours? And that's when we at the Aspen Institute had started to to ask some of the stakeholders that we've been talking with. Uh, MasterCard was one of the very first on the list, both to partner and to sign on. And really, within the course of three or four weeks, we had 112 signatories on the letter saying we support, not only we support this idea, but it should be a priority for this country. And it is across civil rights organizations. It's across credit and fintech, and insurance, and asset management, and uh, it's across code and data organizations. So it's a real uprising of support um, uh, whose time has come, and that's that's really where some of the excitement and momentum is building now. I mean, I want to hear about the work happening at MasterCard, because while I built something completely new, are you all building on the existing infrastructure at MasterCard, or are you also creating something that's just completely different? So it's really interesting, because I think our going-in model is to leverage the assets of companies for social and environmental impact. And so, actually, the partnership between MasterCard and Wole is kind of what I think has up, I mean, accelerated a lot of his work. So in the Los Angeles example, it was MasterCard who was building the the product, but we knew Wole. We were partners with Wole and said, you know what? You should be the company who is partnering with us to get this out in the biggest way. So what MasterCard brings is scale and connection and the ability to move fast. But it's only when we partner with organizations like the Aspen Institute who bring the convening power and the research and the evidence base and Mocafi who brings the reach into communities who are underserved and who underserved and who brings the the passion and the knowledge base and the credibility that any of this really works. And so I think that when it comes to the national financial inclusion strategy that uh, Ida mentioned we at the center really saw an opportunity coming out of COVID to say, we have to get this, we have to do better. Now is the time for private sector companies. And you'll, if it, uh, maybe Ida has a breakdown, but it's, it's a really good mix of people who have signed on to this because what we've realized is this is something we all have to participate in. What we've realized is we have an ability to use the assets of MasterCard for social impact. And I think the financial inclusion, a digital economy, but certainly the national financial inclusion strategy will allow us, but many others, to tie our work to something bigger. We can't operate in silos. So our hope for this initiative is really that we can seize the opportunity to bring all of the um, organizations together to actually have a blueprint for action that makes a difference. And just can I build on, on Shamina's point? It's one of those wonderful things in terms of partnerships because the Mocafi MasterCard partnership really has been able to reimagine how you get financial services to communities in the city of Los Angeles. And that partnership led to a partnership with Wells Fargo where they made their ATM available to anybody who has an Angelino account for free. And so you now start to create an ecosystem where everyone's playing to their strengths and their natural positions in the marketplace, and then there's a role for the community groups to be a further voice, and there's a role for government to play to bring it all together. So I think this is one of those opportunities where you can have several, people talk about a three-legged stool, I talk about a four-legged chair where you have government, you have philanthropy, you have organizations like 
Mocafi, the innovators, then you have some of the larger traditional, you know, more traditional banking services, financial services working all together to solve this problem. I think it's pretty exciting. And we haven't seen this kind of coalition building on this topic as far as I can remember. I've been in this game now for over 25 years, and I think this is the the most momentum I've seen in terms of building coalition to solve this. When you talk about that four-legged chair, Wale, and I, specifically when we, we look at the corporate leg of that, I mean, MasterCard, similar companies, they want to turn a profit. So how how does that fit into the broader conversation? Because people could very easily say, well, of course you want me to be part of this. You want my money. You want the fees. You want, you know, you want the the uh, interest rates, uh, all of that. And I think it gets back to that trust question we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So I think, look, I think motivation is a really uh, important part of the conversation. So at MasterCard, um, I run something called the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth because there's a recognition that a digital economy and a financial system that doesn't include billions of people in a very, very long term is not good for a company like MasterCard that relies on people to participate in the formal economy. But the truth of the matter is these programs, at least from our perspective, are placing long, long, long long-term bets in the future of the economy. They're not necessarily programs that will yield immediate return for the organization. And so we kind of think about it as a triangle that sort of says on one side of the triangle – you have inclusion. On the other side of the triangle, you have environmental initiatives. But on the base of the triangle, it's really short-term versus long-term. And depending on how short, near-term, or long-term you have to go determines your strategy. But there's no question that is part of the business strategy no matter what. Well, talk about the education curve here when you go into a community and you say, we, we have a way to close this gap for you. What are, the, what are the questions people have about how this works? What are the barriers you have to break through to get them engaged in this? So I think part of it is meeting people at a place that says, what are you trying to accomplish? And how can we use our platform, our tools, our resources to help you accomplish that? And oftentimes, homeownership is, a, is an example that I just come back to. People want to buy homes. They have, but it's the largest purchase they're ever going to make in their lives. And they may not have someone in their family to guide them through that process. So they become, so it's a very intimidating process. It's interesting. Today, fewer African Americans own homes than when President Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act in 1968. So, People don't have folks they can turn to to say, how do I do this? And so part of it is just saying, here are the tools, the resources, the dollars. There are a lot of programs, not enough, but there are many programs out there that have make first-time home buyer give them access to down payment assistance dollars and helping people navigate that. People are saying, well, you know, I got a gig economy job. I don't necessarily have the documentation that a traditional lender would look at. But I, I can tell you, based on my cash flow, owning a home would be cheaper than the rent that I'm paying. So it's really helping people take their situation and put it into a context that A, they understand, and B, can be translated to a potential lender. The only thing I would just add on the prior point around this question of profit 
And if you are building a company that's providing a service, I actually think that it's important for us to come up with business models that are sustainable. This is a serious issue that we're dealing with, another interesting statistic. The amount of wealth in the black community is the same today as it was when Lincoln freed the slaves, right? And we can talk about the Freedmen's Bank and what happened there, but the reality is we've not made a lot of progress. And so as we think about these chronic issues, we need to think about what are the institutions that can outlive all of us over an extended period of time that could ensure all people have access to responsible financial products and services. And there's a role that philanthropy can play. There's a role that government can play. There's a role that corporates like MasterCard and Wells Fargo and others can play. But we need to create these business models so 50 years from now, 75 years from now, when a group of people are sitting and having this conversation, they'll say, we're in a much different place today than we were in 2022 because we've had institutions that can solve these problems and are committed to it. That's Wale Coxum. He's founder and CEO of the startup Mobility Capital Finance. We also heard from Shimina Singh. She's a founder and president of the Center for Inclusive Growth. That's the philanthropic hub of MasterCard. And Ida Rademacher, vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of its financial security program. Our producers at the Aspen Ideas Fest were Michelle Harvin and Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.